from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Emily Goshi on January 18, 2016. Emily is a graduate student focusing on contemporary Islamic communities. Emily caught my eye because it seems that the Islamic community is so misunderstood these days. We talk about the misconceptions of Islam and her graduate work in this area. Emily just became a mom, so at times her daughter decides to chime in. During the first 20 minutes of the interview, there is an intermittent hum that appeared as she spoke. We finally fixed the problem, so please be patient. I started the interview by asking Emily where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I was actually born in Tokyo, Japan. Um, My parents were doing some Christian sort of missionary work there at the time, and my four brothers and I were all born there. When I was four, we moved back to Minnesota, which is where my father is from originally. I spent the rest of my childhood there until I went off to college on the East Coast. So I don't remember much about Japan. I remember being like the only white blonde child that I knew other than my brothers. And then coming to Minnesota and suddenly seeing tons of other people who looked like me, which was really interesting. So you probably don't remember a whole lot about Japan. No, yeah. One of just the clearest memory in my mind is thinking that I was the only blonde child in the world. My mother tells this story about how When I was about three years old, I was begging her to dye my hair black because (laughs) there were no other blonde children that I was aware of. And I felt so strange. Of course, I'm not going to dye your hair black. You're three, you know. (laughs) So what was it like growing up in Minnesota? It was really nice. I mean, we had sort of a quiet life in the suburbs. Spent a lot of time with my brothers. The five of us are all very close in age. So even when we were living in neighborhoods that didn't have a lot of kids, we always had each other to play with. But... Now, reflecting back, I just remember thinking how little diversity there was because I was so fascinated that there were, you know, a couple of Somali and Mexican students in my high school. That was the coolest thing. And then when I moved to Philadelphia for university, I was just shocked, you know, at Mm. how many people of different backgrounds were there. And I thought it was fascinating. And what was religious life growing up? I was raised in a, a Christian family, just sort of broadly Protestant, no particular church or denomination in general and they are sort of christians in you know in my opinion in like the absolute best sense of the word you know they do their best to love their neighbor to take them you know to just be overall good people but for them religion is also deeply personal so we didn't attend church very often we read a lot of the bible at home especially you know so for example christmas morning we would wake up and before opening our presents or looking in our stockings we would read the biblical story of the birth of christ when was it that you ran into the Baha'i faith, and how, how did that happen? When I was a, maybe a junior in high school, I was part of a program that connected students from Minnesota with refugee students who had just immigrated from Somalia. So I was partnered with a Somali student, and we ended up talking a lot about religion. He was Muslim, I was Christian. And the teacher who organized that program was a Baha'i. 
you know, I mean, you can only have so many conversations about religion in, in a public school, but, you know, little things like, what are your holidays? When are they? What do you celebrate? And that was how I first encountered the Baha'i faith. But it wasn't until I graduated high school that I could really have more in-depth conversations with that teacher. Actually, I invited him to my graduation party, and for my gift, he gave me a book about the Baha'i faith. And I remember traveling to France that summer. I was going to study French and to sort of, you know, I'd been studying French for years and I wanted to improve my conversational skills. So I brought that book with me and I remember reading it cover to cover and just taking notes all over it and tearing it apart and, you know, triple highlighting some things and crossing out other things. And then when I came back, I had a million and one questions about the Baha'i faith for this teacher. But when I went back and met with him to ask him some of these questions, he said, well, you're about to move to Philadelphia to go to university. I'm sure that there's a Baha'i community out there. Why don't you reach out to them and see if they mm -hmm. can help you? And that's what I did. It took a little while. I think my first semester of college, I was more preoccupied with sort of finding my place at the school and fitting in. You know, I was very spiritual growing up. I, I was, you know, deeply, I held deep convictions. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus, you know, as my personal savior. And then around, you know, around the time I actually started this tutoring program and was meeting Muslims and Baha'is, I just really couldn't reconcile the idea that, and that is pretty standard in Christianity, that people who are not Christian, you know, don't have the right to enter heaven the way that, that Christians have the right to. That just didn't seem coherent with me with the idea that God is all loving and all merciful. So I sort of distanced myself from Christianity, promising to myself that I would search for other things and then sort of became lazy and stopped searching altogether. But then it was about maybe the beginning of my second semester at college when I started feeling that something was empty. There was some part of me that wasn't fulfilled. You know, meeting new friends at college and studying interesting subject matter wasn't enough. I felt the need for something more than that. I ended up remembering about the Baha'i faith through kind of, you know, a funny little event. And then I, uh, I reached out to the Baha'i community in Philadelphia and was put in touch with someone who ended up becoming one of my best friends, uh, Jack Skinner. You said silly little incident? I was learning about Islam at the time. And of course, now you know I'm doing my PhD in Islamic studies. And I had fasted Ramadan once with some of my Muslim friends in high school. I found fasting to be so spiritually uplifting and just so beneficial. So when I, I hit this sort of low point, end of my first semester freshman year, where I felt just so empty and I, I had no idea how to approach God because I had sort of decided I was leaving Christianity, but hadn't made the effort to investigate anything else. And so sort of praying in the way that I would as a Christian didn't feel right. And I, I didn't know where to start. So I just decided I would fast. And so the next day I woke up you know, started fasting. And then after, um, it was after my psychology class. I remember getting out of my psych class and walking back toward my dorm. And there were some, some pretty sort of radical Christian groups protesting. I can't remember what they were protesting out, but they were, they held up signs that said things like, you know, come find out if you're going to heaven or hell. And for some reason, I'm, I'm not a very confrontational person. I would under no circumstances do this normally, but I walked up to them and said, you know, so, you know, how do you know if I'm going to heaven or hell? How could you presume to know that about me? You know, he s responded with this sort of tirade about, about his beliefs. And, and I remember saying to him, do you really believe that, you know, a God who is all merciful and all loving would send just thousands or millions or even billions of people to hell? 
And he responded, he said, well, do you know of any other religion that, you know, says that people who don't belong to it aren't going to hell? He said, Islam believes non-Muslims are going to hell. And, you know, he started listing these things. And first of all, that's not entirely true about Islam. But I just responded and I said, oh, yeah, well, have you ever heard of the Baha'i faith? Baha'is don't believe that non-Baha'is are going to hell. And he said, oh, no, I haven't heard of that. And I just said, well, you should go look it up and, you know, stormed off. I was very upset. And then as I was walking back to my dorm, I realized, you know, maybe I should look up the Baha'i faith. I hadn't really done anything about it since I read that book. On the Baha'i website, there's a, a link where you can contact Baha'is in your area. So I, I reached out to them, and within a few days, I was put in touch with someone who lives pretty close to me. So after you got in touch with them, what, what was the next step? We met up at a coffee shop. It was uh, two of the Baha'is at my university and myself, and uh, I think they just they gave me a prayer book, and we chatted a little bit about the basic principles of the faith and how I had come across it. But then it was sort of a long road of ups and downs and of questioning and of doubt before I, I think it was probably a year or so after that, that I decided I wanted to be a Baha'i. You know, I think whenever we're investigating truth, we come up upon things we don't agree with, right? Mm -hmm. And at some point, I realized that I wasn't actually looking for the truth when I was exploring the Baha'i faith. I was looking for a community that affirmed everything that I already believed in. So when I encounter things in the Baha'i faith that didn't already mesh with my just sort of basic, you know, progressive, liberal, democratic stance on life, uh, I would get frustrated. And it took, you know, some pretty big tests, you know, learning about things in the Baha'i faith that I didn't agree with to make me realize that, wait a minute, if God is actually, you know, the all-knowing and the all-powerful and, you know, the creator who is beyond our comprehension, then it makes sense that he would know more than I do and that I wouldn't have already tapped into his infinite wisdom. It would make, if God and his faith are something that I can comprehend in its entirety and that makes perfect sense to me, then I don't really want to be a part of it. And that's not what I'm looking for. So once I realized that assumption and, you know, prompted by my Baha'i friends really encouraging me to adopt more of a humble posture of learning, then I decided that I had learned enough about the faith that I felt persuaded that Baha'u'llah was the manifestation for our time and that even if there were things that, you know, aspects of his message that I didn't understand yet, I would rather be a part of the community and work toward understanding that than deprive myself from what I believe, you know, is, is this legitimate faith and this beautiful tradition, you know, just to maintain my own impressions of, of social life and, you know, certain laws and certain ideas. How do you distinguish between those things that might indicate, well, this is not the truth versus taking these things that you didn't agree with and taking a harder look? That's a great question. Sort of, if, if I've understood you correctly, your question is, how did I feel confident enough to say, even though I disagree with some of this, I, I can believe it's the truth? Yes. Yeah. The idea of progressive revelation just made perfect sense to me. The idea that Mankind's relationship with God is part of this eternal covenant. And although God created us with free will, free will could very easily mean mankind making terrible decisions and not able to live with any sort of harmony or peace. So in addition to free will, we get the promise that we will always have guidance from a divine source to prompt us toward living in harmony and peace and toward success for mankind. 
although I had left Christianity, I had never doubted the, the potency of Christ's message. And after studying Islam, I became very convinced. I never actually officially converted to Islam, but around the time that I had found the Baha'i faith, and around the time I declared as a Baha'i, I was considering converting to Islam. If I had not found the Baha'i faith, I'm confident that I would be Muslim. Um, so I was seeing all of these messages and the potency of these messages and the idea that they are all true, they are all equally valid. The difference is that they are beautifully crafted for the time and place for which they are revealed. That just made so much sense to me. And when I read Baha'u'llah's message, although there were aspects of it I couldn't understand, it seemed to me overwhelmingly clear that that message was perfectly crafted for our time. And I wanted to benefit from that in my own life. What was it about Islam that attracted you? Oh, there's so much. I think in, in a more superficial way, it was everything that Christianity never offered me. So my parents are deeply religious and spiritual, and you know, there's no waver in their faith. But I never had a community I never had sort of ritual practices. I never had the, the sort of outward elements of faith that made me feel like I was part of a religious society. So, you know, obligatory prayer, a house of worship, these things that Muslims experience very, very regularly, I think more so than Christians. So I loved, you know, the, the tradition of fasting, the five times daily prayer, the mosque community. And I was going to all different kinds of mosques for research that I was doing at the time as well. I would see my Muslim friends interacting with each other, and they have this amazing bond of, of fellowship that I was deeply jealous of at the time. And also, you know, I was traveling to Muslim communities, and uh, the Muslim standard of chastity, I think, you know, there's certainly a Christian standard of chastity, but the Christians I knew weren't working very hard to maintain that, and the Muslims I knew were so sincere in working toward that standard. That was really inspiring to me, and as I read the Quran, and as I deepened in the Muslim texts and in Islamic history, I just, I was blown away by, oh, the beauty of the message of the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, the Quran is, yeah, I think to this day, even after becoming a Baha'i, I have a relationship with the Quran as a text that I don't have with any of the Baha'i writings. It is just so beautiful and so complete and addresses all aspects of spiritual and physical life. And it's, you know, it's just beautiful to hear it chanted also in Arabic. I've been studying Arabic now for maybe seven or eight years. And just the Arabic language of the Quran is also gorgeous. Why is it that Westerners have this perspective of the Quran that it advocates, I wouldn't say warfare, but advocates... Um... I think I understand where you're coming from. There is a broad perception in the West that the Quran is a document that ultimately justifies certain types of violence or certain types of hostility. Right. And why do people have that perspective and why is that incorrect? Well, you know, I think this is a very complicated question and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about it today. Because on the one hand, you have this voice in the West that Islam is a religion of peace, and that is deeply oversimplistic, although generally true. But it doesn't allow for the nuance that allows us to effectively counteract the argument that Islam is a religion of violence, because there are aspects of the Islamic tradition that are legitimate to that tradition, verses of the Quran, traditions from the Prophet Muhammad, that can undoubtedly be interpreted in a violent way whether they are inherently violent or encouraging violence or not. 
So there are verses in the Quran that talk about warfare. There are verses that talk about killing the infidel. There are, you know, the, those verses are there, and that's why people have been able to give Westerners broadly this impression that Islam is a violent faith. So it's complicated. Now, you know, there's a Baha'i perspective, and then there's an academic perspective, and I'm, I'm engaging with both at the same time. The academic perspective is, I think, deeply fragmented, because on the one hand, the sort of modern standards of political correctness and just general social principles of wanting to include everyone prompt us to oversimplify the Islamic faith and to oversimplify the history of violence in Islam. You know, those verses exist. Some of the things that ISIS tries to justify through Islamic verses, you know, those verses are real. They're not making them up. They're interpreting them in a way that most Muslims would find absolutely abhorrent and unacceptable and illegitimate in their own faith. But nevertheless, those verses exist and it's not unthinkable that one could interpret them in that way. So from a Baha'i perspective, it's actually quite easy to resolve this conflict. So if you want to follow the Islamic texts very literally to a T and interpret them in the way that, you know, these sort of extremist groups do, you can do that. And at a surface level, it seems very authentic. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why this is just, you know, a personal interpretation. I think one of the reasons why uh, extremist groups, they would identify themselves as maybe Salafi groups. Their popularity has a lot to do with the fact that if you just listen to them for maybe 20 minutes, it seems like they are deeply sincere believers willing to sacrifice everything in the path of God and have no concern for the standards of this world, but want to uphold God's law as it is. And the reason why that is so especially appealing now is because there is this huge trend in Islam toward uh, modernism and a type of reforming of Islam that is willing to abandon things that are fairly rigid in the text. So for example, slavery. Slavery is, although discouraged by the prophet, is built into the social structure that the Quran envisions. So for example, if you can't fast Ramadan, you can free a slave instead. So it just assumes that slavery is a part of the way things work. And modernist Muslims have said, well, that was a long time ago. We need to update Islam and update these laws for the modern world. And they would see that as being coherent with, with the religion of Islam. They don't think that they betray Islam by doing that. They think that they, um, they actually fulfill the true intent of, of God and the prophet and the, you know, the core of the message rather than just the letter of the law. Now, from a Baha'i perspective, you know, it's an unnecessary dichotomy, right? So this idea that either we follow the Quran to the letter, but then are totally out of touch with the times, or we abandon certain laws and precepts in order to update Islam for the times, that's unnecessary because certainly, yes, times change. Certainly we need to update, but it's not up to humanity to write new laws. It's up to God. God decides when the times have changed enough for us to need new guidance. You know, they're both right in a sense. Yes, we have to obey God's law, but no, we don't have to write the new laws for ourselves. From a Baha'i perspective, those laws in the Quran and the traditions of the prophet are entirely legitimate and are full of wisdom and provided endless benefit for the society for which the Quran was intended. But there's an expiration date on that, not for the, you know, the core spiritual message, but for the particular laws and precepts that have to do more with social interaction and with practical daily life.
those need to be updated. And for that reason, we have now the Baha'i Faith, which has the same core spiritual message, but with updated laws and regulations. How does the Baha'i perspective inform your academic research? I'm still really exploring that question. Um, I'm working with a number of other Baha'is who also study religion academically. And we're just starting to ask that question because in the past, I think Baha'i academics have had sort of different approaches. There's been the approach of sort of really using the Baha'i faith and Baha'i writings to inform their work directly. But then often what that results in is only other Baha'is can can follow your arguments, right? Like if you don't take, if you don't start from the same assumptions as a Baha'i, it's hard to follow the logic of, of the argument. And then there's the other stance of, contributing to the field as it is, but sort of using Baha'i principles and concepts to inform your work throughout the way. And now there's there's an attempt to try something new, but there's not a clear idea of what that new thing will be. So we're just sort of starting from scratch. But, uh, you know, in my, my personal academic work so far, well, first of all, the Baha'i faith has a very high standard of of peacemaking and of, of unity and of, of just productive consultation. And to be honest, that's really just at the beginning. And I'm also just at the beginning of my career. You know, I'm still working on my PhD. I haven't really started publishing or I don't even know exactly what my thesis is going to be on. I know broadly, but I haven't, for example, you know, presented my, my specific outline for my dissertation yet. So I'm still just sort of discovering what it means, but it certainly means, you know, trying to encourage unity and collaboration wherever possible and avoiding conflict and contention. You know, unfortunately, there's quite a bit of conflict and contention in the academy, or at least there can be, you know, there are professors who don't get along. There are sometimes situations where you feel forced to take one side or the other in a sort of academic battle. But, you know, being a Baha'i has, has given me a set of tools to navigate those interactions as well that I think are more conducive to unity. Even without labeling it Baha'i, just the perspective of being a Baha'i could be a, a fresh perspective at a research topic. Definitely. So, for example, Baha'u'llah offers us amazing interpretations of certain verses of the Quran and of certain sayings from the Prophet Muhammad. And that also brings new things to light. Yeah, for instance, Abdul Baha is the uh, son of Baha'u'llah and mm-hmm. was chosen by Baha'u'llah to carry forward the Baha'i faith after he passes away. There's a book called Some Answered Questions in which he answers some questions that a believer posed to him. And one was about Muhammad. Abdul Baha makes the assertion that all of the battles that Muhammad conducted were all defensive in nature. And his argument, his argument is that Muhammad suffered persecution for like three years, I think, Mm -hmm. in Mecca without any retaliation at all. And And it was only when he was at the point of being killed that he escaped Mecca and went to Medina. And so Abdul Baha's argument is it's only because the people of Mecca chased after him to Medina that he then started defending his community. Mm. And that's his argument of why all of the battles are defensive in nature. And Abdu'l-Bahá says the reason Islamic tradition has it that he did all of this 
plundering and caravan raiding and all of that is because at the time they glorified that kind of warfare quality and exaggerated exactly what uh, Mohammed actually did because their perspective was that being warrior-like was complementary and, and therefore exaggerated exactly what the historical record really was. You know, you're the scholar, and maybe some of that is inaccurate of what I said, but I believe that's what Abdu'l-Bahá said in some answered questions. And this is something I think about a lot because, well, I also, I don't really study early Islam as much. I usually study more modern Muslim communities. Uh, so my own knowledge of the early battles and things is is not great, but I have mm-hmm. studied it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I know that in the scholarly community, there is not a very clear consensus about whether ultimately the prophet was acting in defense or whether, you know, there were sort of, you know, aggressive actions as well. Exactly. And I think if you were to look at it in a broad perspective from the way that Abdu'l-Bahá describes it, that the Prophet's community was never violent until pushed to be violent in defense of their community, that makes sense in the broad narrative, certainly. Right. And I think the people who talk about aggressive action on the Muslims' part are usually talking about individual acts of aggression that were not immediately warranted. So, for example, it wasn't that in every case the enemies of the Prophet were attacking them physically and they were then responding. There were times in which certainly the Prophet's community were initiating these battles, were going and attacking the other side. But you could certainly make the argument that it was all in the effort to defend the Muslim community. Right, exactly. You indicated a little bit of uh, what your PhD focus is, and I thought maybe you could elaborate a little bit about what your aspect of Islam are you you focusing on in your PhD program? Sure. It looks like I will be writing my dissertation on the Ibadi community, which is a particular Muslim community mainly found today in Oman, which is a country just sort of southeast of Saudi Arabia, uh, right on the Persian Gulf across the water from Iran, south of the Emirates. And this community historically has also been present in Algeria, in Libya, and in Zanzibar because Oman essentially governed and owned Zanzibar for a period of time. So my interest is in the fact that in the modern, in the modern day world, Oman is very heavily invested in Islamic tolerance, to some extent, Islamic pluralism. The Sultan of Oman, for example, and his government sponsor publications that talk about diversity within Islam, that talk about tolerance within Islam. The interesting thing is that historically, the Ibadi community stems out of the group called the Khawarij, which are those generally considered in Islamic history to be the least tolerant. It's understandable why the Ibadis would be more tolerant now for a number of reasons. But what's especially interesting to me is, so now the Ibadi community in Oman is surrounded by countries that are experiencing a growth in Salafi Islam. And Salafi Islam is a hotly contested term, but broadly means Muslims who believe that we should get rid of most of the changes that happened to Islam throughout the majority of its history and go back and live the way that the Prophet and the first three generations of his followers lived. That their example was the supreme example, and we should live according to that. So this Salafi movement that has engulfed most of of the Gulf has 
not really been explored in Oman. So I'm interested in thinking about, you know, how Ibadis think about Salafis, how Salafis think about Ibadis, because Salafis are broadly a part of the Sunni tradition. And so you've heard of certainly Sunnis and Shiites. Ibadis are neither of them. They're actually a third branch of Islam that's not usually talked about because there are so few of them. Now, it's interesting that name is very similar to a part of Baha'i history before Baha'u'llah, the forerunner of the Baha'i faith, was the Bab, which meant the gate. I'm wondering if Ibabi has something to do with the term gate or not. It sounds similar in English, but the letters that they go back to in Arabic are actually different. Mm. It was named after Abdullah ibn Ibab, who was one of the early leaders of the community. To go back to your family, you were somewhat alienated from Christianity because of its exclusivity. Yeah. You started looking at Islam. What was your parents' reaction to you starting to look at Islam? You know, it's amazing. I am so blessed to have two of the most understanding and loving parents. They knew when I sort of distanced myself from Christianity. And instead of, you know, getting upset or trying to convince me otherwise, they really encouraged me to cultivate a relationship with God and to explore what I believed, especially my father. You know, I am one of five children and none of my brothers really would identify as Christian now, although some of them would certainly identify as being sort of spiritual or, or are concerned with those questions of existence and what is the meaning of life. But I'm the only one who really tried to pursue a direct relationship with God. And I think my parents really appreciated that. And, you know, they encouraged me the whole way. So when I was exploring Islam, they were supportive. And when I was exploring the Baha'i faith, actually, I remember my father telling me that when he was in Japan, so this is back, you know, 20 years before I became a Baha'i, he actually had met a Baha'i woman when he was in Japan. <laughs> I remember him telling me the story. He said, you know, I don't remember anything about what you told me. We must have talked for about an hour. Hmm. And, you know, she told me all about the Baha'i faith and I told her all about Christianity. And he said, I don't remember anything about the Baha'i faith or its tenets, but I remember her being a really wonderful woman, being so kind and and speaking in such a loving way that whatever she believed must have been good. <laughs> and so then when I became a Baha'i, he had had this good impression of Baha'is before that I think reassured him that it wasn't some sort of crazy cult or anything like that. And actually since then, uh, my parents have, you know, they've asked us different, they've asked my husband and I different questions about the faith. My husband is also a Baha'i. And unlike me, he was raised in a Baha'i family. So his whole family comes from this tradition. And Whenever our families have interacted, my family is really curious to know how the Baha'i faith influences their lives, what it means for us day to day, and what the Baha'i faith has to say about things such as the afterlife and morality. So we've had great conversations about it. I was looking you up on the internet. Did you write an article called Islamic Feminism in Kuwait, The Policies and Paradoxes? So that's a book written by... Alessandra Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book review of that mm -hmm. book. And my husband is actually from Kuwait. So did he become a Baha'i in Kuwait? No. So his whole family has been Baha'i for generations. At a certain period, of course, in Baha'i history, there was a movement to sort of ensure that people all around the world could have access to the Baha'i message. And so, you know, not in the spirit of proselytization, but, you know, Baha'is were traveling to different parts of the world and 
His mother's parents ended up in Qatar and his father's parents ended up in Kuwait. He's a third generation Kuwaiti. They've been there for some time. What's the climate there for Baha'is in those countries compared to, let's say, Iran, where the the Baha'is are significantly persecuted? I know from what my husband says and from what, you know, I've heard anecdotally that Kuwait is relative to some of the other countries in the area, especially Iran, very open, actually. Kuwait has a thriving democratic tradition and in general, uh, open criticism and you know, discourse about the government is encouraged and is, is public and is open. And the constitution of Kuwait, as I understand it, also guarantees freedom of belief, Hurriyat al-Aqidah in Arabic. So Baha'is are actually quite well protected. The issue, I think, in Kuwait is more that there just aren't enough Baha'is for the government to have ever even considered putting in you know, measures by which Baha'is can do what they need to do. So in Kuwait, if you're a Muslim, it's very easy to get married, get a birth certificate and all these things. And in Kuwait, like in many of those countries, those basic civil procedures have a religious component. You know, it says what religion you are on your birth certificate, for example. So they've accommodated the other communities that are present in Kuwait. There's a way, for example, for Christians to do all of those things, and it's not a problem. There's even a court for non-Muslims in Kuwait, Mahkamat Ghayr al-Muslimin. But there are so few, not so few Baha'is in Kuwait. There are actually, you know, there's a significant number of them there but so few Baha'is who are Kuwaiti citizens. And so because of that, the government has never really had to do these things for Baha'is in the past. And so the vehicles just aren't there. So what does a Kuwaiti Baha'i couple do if they want to get married? Well, we're still finding that out. My husband and I have been married for over two and a half years now. And that was the question. We would just sort of go to the courts and, and, and try to figure out, well, what do we do in this case? And no one really knew. Because it wasn't clear that we would be able to get married in Kuwait, we actually got our civil marriage in the UK. I'm actually, I'm a British citizen as well as an American citizen. And then we did our Baha'i ceremony on the same day. So it's just been kind of trying to figure out how to bring one of those marriages back through the Kuwaiti legal system. And we're still navigating that right now. It's As of now, I don't think that Kuwait has recognized our marriage yet. Now, how is it that you have a UK citizenship? My mother is actually British. So my mother and father met in Japan. My mother was doing a gap year before going to university just to sort of travel and get to see the world. And my father was doing a junior year study abroad from university teaching English. And they met and got married and had five kids and didn't leave Japan until I think maybe 11 years, 12 years later. And when they left, we went back to the U.S. so that my father could finish that fourth year of college he had never had the chance to finish. And then we just stayed in the U.S. I've read that you also went to Tajikistan. Yes, yes. So tell me about that. Why, why did you go to Tajikistan? For my studies, I have to be conversant in a number of languages. I had studied Arabic for a long time before starting my Ph.D., but didn't have very good Farsi skills. So, and because I study the Arabian Gulf area, there are a lot of reasons to study Farsi when one works in that area. So I'd been studying Farsi academically for two years and then decided, or maybe actually just one year. Yeah, it was after my first year of Farsi. I applied for one of the U.S. government's um, international language programs, and I got a scholarship to go spend two months in Tajikistan just studying Farsi at a language institute there. So I went it was 
a steep learning curve. The Farsi was challenging. It was an intensive summer course, but just sort of learning how to navigate Tajikistan. I had spent time before in Morocco and in Egypt, but never in a former Soviet republic. You know, I learned so much so fast and I'd never seen anything like it. The infrastructure or lack thereof, just the mechanics of daily life of really having to watch where you walk because there are gaping holes in the sidewalk or um, you know, ha- having hours in the day when there isn't water or isn't electricity. Is there a Baha'i community in Tajikistan? There is. They actually have a Baha'i center in Dushanbe, which is the capital. So I was lucky enough to go and spend a lot of time with them. When I was there in the summer, it was like there was a, there was a Baha'i holy day. So some of my friends from the Language Institute and I went to the Baha'i Center and, and spent that with the Baha'is. And actually, so I was in the capital, Dushanbe, but far north of the capital, there's an area called Khojand, which is actually an international learning site for the junior youth program, which is one of the sort of core activities of the Baha'i community. And I got to visit that city. I wish I had been able to spend some more time with the Baha'is there, but I understand that they have a really thriving community. So tell me about Morocco. What was it like living there and how long were you there? I spent a year in Morocco. That was my longest stint abroad. It was my junior year study abroad. Oh, it was spectacular. I absolutely fell in love with Morocco and with the people there. It's a country that has just about everything you could want. So just, you know, excellent cuisine, all different types of landscapes. So they've got everything from beautiful beach destinations to something kind of resembling a rainforest to really beautiful sand dunes out in the desert and mountains. I actually climbed Mount Tubkal while I was there, which is the highest mountain in North Africa. That was one of my, one of the best things I did when I was there. It was a beautiful mm. experience. And another thing I love about Morocco is the, the mix of cultures. So you have, of course, Arabic culture from when the Arabs came over after the Islamic expansion. But even before the Arabs were in Morocco, there's an ancient indigenous North African community there who are often referred to as the Berbers, but more sort of politically correctly called the Imaziren. They're sort of, you know, indigenous tribes of North Africa. Not only that, but then, of course, from the era of colonialism, you have French and Spanish influence as well. So it's just this amazing mix of cultures and languages. I mean, I was constantly meeting Moroccans who spoke four or five languages. All of them almost speak at least two or three. Were you a Baha'i when you visited Morocco? I was. I had become a Baha'i maybe three or four months before I left for Morocco. And actually, when I went there, I was able to immediately connect with the Baha'i community. There's a, very, a pretty sizable community in, uh, in Rabat, which is the capital. Mm-hmm. So I really spent you know, my time getting to know the Baha'i faith and getting accustomed to the holy days and things like that with the Moroccan Baha'is. So that was sort of your indoctrination into the Baha'i community? It was. And it was beautiful because I think if I hadn't had that experience, I would have sort of assumed that the way we do things in America and the Baha'i community is true throughout the world. And and it isn't. You know, one of the beautiful things I think about the Baha'i faith is that we have so little tradition in, in, in that sense of, you know, particular rituals or particular things we have to do on holy days that it really lends itself to blending into any culture and any tradition. So in Morocco for the Holy Days, we went out and, you know, like roasted a lamb and, you know, celebrated in a forest, dancing and singing and eating great food. It was wonderful. And, you know, in America on that same Holy Day, it would probably be something entirely different. 
do the Moroccan Baha'is have freedom to express their faith there? To some extent, you know, their freedoms have increased a lot. Back, and I don't remember exactly when this was, but I think it was maybe back in the end of the 60s, the previous ruler of Morocco, Hassan II, the current king, Mohammed VI, is his son. The previous ruler was much more strict. And I believe that several Baha'is were imprisoned under his rule, and they were eventually released. But under Mohammed VI, the current ruler, general you know, freedom of speech has expanded, religious freedom has expanded, and Moroccan Baha'is more or less are able to share the faith with their friends openly. And you said you spent time in Egypt? I did. I spent two months there the summer before the revolution in 2010. Mm. So that was the summer after my freshman year of college. It was just a, an Arabic language study program. But it was my first time traveling to a non-Western country. I had only really been to the U.S., U.K., France, Canada. So that was my first glimpse into the you know, the non-Western world. And man, I think Cairo is a hard place to go to as, as your first stint in a non-Western place. It's, you know, it's, it's absolutely huge. And I was living right in the center of downtown. You know, all the, when the revolution happened, all the protests were in Tahrir Square. Mm-hmm. So my apartment overlooked Tahrir Square. So yeah. it was just amazing to, you know, six months after coming back to see the protests. Oh my God, I can see my living room window from there. Were you a Baha'i at that point? I was not, mm-hmm. although that was after I had met the Baha'is. So I met the Baha'is. Then that summer, well, I was sort of exploring Islam, exploring the Baha'i faith. And one sort of pivotal spiritual moment for me was I had heard that you could go to Sinai and actually climb Mount Sinai. A friend of mine had, had done it. And of course, this is the mountain that Moses climbed, you know, when he encountered the burning bush and sort of met God on that mountain. Being in the peak of my spiritual seeking, I thought, maybe something will happen if I go climb Mount Sinai. And so the friends I was studying Arabic with and I, we all, we took a bus, I don't remember, 13 hours or something out to the Sinai Peninsula. And there's actually a group of Bedouin who reside near the mountain. And their job is they, they take tourists up and they take tourists down. So you get to the bottom of the mountain at about midnight because you, you can't climb during the daytime. It's just too hot. So you get to the bottom at midnight, you know, all these Bedouin with their camels and all these tourists from all over the world coming to have this religious experience. And so we climb, it's about a four hour climb just up and up and up this mountain. And we get to the top at about 4 a.m. And then you watch the sunrise. Oh, wow. And it was spectacular. Just looking over this vast mountainous desert that has so much spiritual importance for the Judeo-Christian tradition. I, you know, I remember there was a group of Catholic nuns singing Chinese hymns. Oh, wow. Um, they were from, they had come from China. And being, I was with some Jewish friends of mine, but also a Muslim friend of mine. And I, I had my Baha'i prayer book that my friend Jack had given me. And I remember reading the Baha'i prayers for the morning on that mountain and really feeling a connection with God that I hadn't felt in a long time. Did you have an opportunity to connect with the Baha'is in Egypt? I did not. Mm-hmm. I didn't seek that out either. I, I wasn't really, at that time, I still didn't know how spread out the Baha'i community was. I wasn't aware that almost everywhere you go, you can find a Baha'i community. So I, didn't th- I don't think it even occurred to me to, to try to find the Baha'is in Egypt. The interesting thing was I found out later that my husband had been in Egypt right around the same time. 
Oh, really? So if I had sat out the behind, I might have, <laughs> you know, a couple years earlier. I guess I want to touch on the Association of Baha'i Studies conference that occurred mm-hmm. recently. There was a panel called The Role of Religion in Society, and you are one of the uh, panelists. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what aspects did the panelists cover, and in particular, what did you present on that panel? So the three of us are sort of specialists in very different fields. Um, Benjamin Shul is really a specialist in the philosophy of religion. So he studies more ideas about what religion is, what secularism is. Specifically, he thinks a lot about secularism and um, new understandings of secularism. So he spoke a lot about how, um, how those understandings are changing. Then Julia, another panelist, she, I believe she works for the Baha'i International Community. So Julia spoke a lot more about the role of the Baha'i faith on the international scene, you know, working with the UN and things like that. And then I am, you know, I wasn't really qualified to be on that panel. I'm not a scholar yet. I'm still just working on my PhD, whereas Ben is a full professor at this Mm. point, basically. Done his PhD. He's, you know, working in academia. I haven't even started my thesis. So it was very humbling to be, you know, put up on a panel with the two of them. But what I spoke about mainly was how being a Baha'i has influenced me in my attempts to study Islam and to, you know, to research different Muslim communities. So some of what I spoke with you about you know, were, were things I spoke about on the panel, but I think the, the main point that I was happy I was able to make when I was on that panel that I'd like to share with you is that you know, in the Baha'i community, you know, we, like every community, are not perfect. And I think sometimes it's easy to fall into this pattern of believing that because the Baha'i revelation was so perfectly crafted for the modern world, that we can just sort of dismiss aspects of other traditions as outdated. We often are a little bit too quick to identify which aspects of other traditions are outdated because they don't mesh with modern progressive, liberal understandings of what is right and wrong. So as kind of a basic example, gender equality is a value that the Baha'i faith upholds in its entirety, right? I mean, Baha'u'llah made very clear that men and women have been and will always be equal in the eyes of God. It's, it's stated very specifically. That does not mean that the Baha'i standard of the equality of men and women actually looks like what the modern liberal understanding of gender equality looks like. So if we use modern standards of you know, what gender equality really means, then the Baha'i faith might not look like it upholds that perfectly. You know, so if our standard is we need our faith to mesh with modern liberal feminism, our faith isn't going to hold up. But if we believe that Baha'u'llah actually came to bring an exalted and high understanding of gender equality, maybe our current liberal understanding hasn't reached that yet. You know, maybe there's something even better than what we're currently envisioning. So when we look back and try to judge Islam for its inability to create gender equality, we have to think twice about whether we're measuring it according to modern standards or whether we're trying to strive for a deeper and more meaningful understanding of the equality of the sexes. 
And in fact, both Abdu'l-Baha and Baha'u'llah use the analogy of the bird and that man and woman constitute each wing of the uh, bird. And if only one of those wings is strong, the bird won't fly. So Baha'i faith makes it clear that both men and women need to be free to fulfill their potential equally. Absolutely. And I think another really good example from the Baha'i tradition. Sorry, my daughter's sort of gurgling. No worries. We'll include her in the interview here. Great. She'll be honored, (laughs) I'm sure. One example that really resonates with me from the Baha'i tradition that I think illustrates this point is something that Abdu'l-Baha once said. Abdu'l-Baha once told a believer that if a family has a son and a daughter and is only able to send one of those children to school, that family should send the girl to school because it is more important for women to be educated because women are the first educators of the next generation. So when I heard that, that to me does not at all jive with modern standards of gender equality. That sounds like propping up women over men. But if we really want to think about of society and true gender equality, maybe what that means is giving women preference in education. You know, we have to be willing, I think, to explore a more complicated understanding of true harmony between men and women. Well, Emily, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Emily Goshi, a Baha'i and graduate student on contemporary Islamic communities. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
studying about that good old way and who shall wear the robe and crown good lord show me the way oh friend in the garden of thy heart plant not but the rose of love oh friend in the garden of thy heart plant not but the rose of love in the garden of thy heart in the garden of thy Not but the rose of love Oh friend, oh, friend In the garden of my heart Let not but the rose of love Oh friend, oh, friend In the garden of my heart XOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.